Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. Welcome back. This is the Gospel Feast series for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. In this episode, we are very excited to finally be getting into the meat of Daniel, a book that Sir Isaac Newton said was the keystone of Christianity. We are going to soon understand why, of the many visions given to the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 11 is considered the most difficult. Yes, Peter, I think that's right. We are excited to jump right into this uh, over the next few episodes. So, Reed, are you ready? We need to step back just a bit and talk about the Jewish concept of time before we get into the great vision of Daniel. Oh my, that is interesting. Uh, please go on. Israel and Israel's God had their own unique way of looking at days. And it's exactly what Nephi said. Unless you learn something about the Jewish way of thinking about periods of time, it will never make any sense. So we do need to have a short primer on this. This is Eastern thinking. Ah. And it's really important because it'll open other parts of the Bible. So anytime we do like an Eastern thinking pause, 
or an Eastern thinking tangent, it's really useful because you need some of these tools to understand the greater Bible. They really did think differently than we do. And that's part of why we struggle so today with some of the Old Testament and a little bit of the New Testament. Although by the time the New Testament was coming on, the Hellenization of the world was underway. So the New Testament is a little easier in some respects than the Old Testament is. In Israelite thinking, the day could be any period of time. Daily meant cyclical or reoccurring in a pattern. So a week was seven equal periods of a reoccurring pattern. A month was 30 equal periods of whatever a day was, and a year was 360 periods of whatever a day was. So one can build on this. A week of days is seven equal periods. A week of months is seven times 30 equal periods of 210 periods. A week of years is seven times 360 equal periods, or 2,520 periods, and so forth. So in other words, 2,300 days could just as easily be 2,300 weeks, months, or years as we understand it. Now, if you're a little confused, you are in great company. Every prophet and saint since the beginning has tried to figure out just what the Lord meant when he said, I'm coming quickly. In heaven's eyes, I'm sure that it's true. But to men on earth, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, you're coming quickly. How quickly is quickly? To make things simpler, Isaac Newton and later Sir Robert Anderson, who we will study also, a really interesting man, both mathematicians beyond any reproach, and Joseph Smith said that days in Daniel were prophetic calendar years. This has also been the traditional rabbinical view. In fact, nothing else comes closer to making any sense. Often in the scriptures, days are years. Now, we already saw how Daniel understood this, because when the Lord said seven years for Nebuchadnezzar's naked Sasquatch experience out in the field, Ah, okay, continue. And Daniel went to the Lord and used this very concept to get it changed from years to months. And the Lord was okay with that. Yes, So it just, again, it shows you, we've already talked about how they thought this way, but it's important to know as we proceed, because we're going to hear about prophetic days, and these are going to mean years. Daniel had learned from Father Noah, who is Gabriel, that it would be 2,300 days from the loss of the daily sacrifice until the sanctuary would be clean again. Thinking in Jewish terms, this answer is more literally translated this way, there will be 2,300 continual periods from the start of the desolation until all is restored on the earth. So the term the daily sacrifice is an unfortunate translation in Daniel, and it has caused great confusion in the Christian and Jewish communities. The question can be answered, what constitutes the daily sacrifice in any religion? And what does daily sacrifice mean here in Daniel? Christians refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God and teach that he would be the last perfect sacrifice of blood for the people. If daily sacrifice only meant blood sacrifice in the Levitical sense, then why did Jesus come to fulfill the law of Moses and not destroy the law, as he said? The matter is further confused by terms of the abomination of desolation. Oh my, that is interesting. Which has caused a great deal of confusion also in Christianity and in Judaism. This is traditionally connected to the removal of the daily sacrifice in Daniel. We are fortunate to have Joseph Smith's take on this difficult passage. Through modern revelation, we understand that the dreaded abomination of desolation is not an idol or an object of false worship, as many Christians believe, but a cruel siege. 
It is a vile event that brings about total destruction. Titus's siege of the city of Jerusalem was just such an event. Conditions in Jerusalem became so dire that starving Jews even turned to cannibalizing neighbors and their own children. There can be no greater or vile destruction than eating one's own children. Of all the abominations, none leaves a nation more desolate, more truly without increase. This is aptly called the abomination of desolation. Oh, wow. I can't think of anything more desolating and certainly more abominable than uh, people cannibalizing their own children. Overcome from his deep fasting, Daniel fainted from exhaustion. He shared the vision with those who he trusted, but few understood it. And he was mostly just astonished by the whole thing. When we next find Daniel, some years have passed. He is now serving the Persians, having witnessed the fulfillment of the destruction of Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty. Wanting to make sense of all that he had learned, and knowing that God gives to those who do their part, he had been studying the scriptures diligently. As he did, he came upon the writings of Jeremiah, particularly chapter 25, verse 12. Let me read this to you. And it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. Daniel, reading this, understood that the long captivity of Judah was nearly over. Being the Jew in the land, with the highest authority, he knew that preparations needed to be made soon to get the people back to Jerusalem. He would most likely be the man who would have to do this. But he was also confused. Since Jeremiah said 70 would be the length of exile from their homeland, how was 2,300 prophetic days divisible in any clean way by 70? Honest students of prophecy must see that our Lord is not a God of complex absurdities. Yes, his ways are higher than our ways, but he does not speak in dark, nuanced riddles like the pagan oracles do. If ever you see overly complicated explanations of God's word or big confusing charts with things like the great white throne and heavy contradictory sermons, it's time to be wary. A study of Daniel is the perfect example. God's heavenly visions may seem complicated at first, but when a handful of keys are turned, they become simple and easy to understand. No matter how many times evangelical end-time charts are explained, they are confusing. God is not the author of this confusion, so we'll have to come back to that. But realize that Daniel realized that something was missing from the information he'd been given. Either that or he simply didn't understand it. God is consistent, and so Daniel petitioned him again through fasting, humility, and prayer, and he followed the same pattern that we discussed before. Daniel would later say that while the words were yet in his mouth, he felt a hand touch him. It was Father Noah again, in his celestial glory as the archangel Gabriel, and he'd come to teach this son of his in a matter more plain than had ever been taught before. This would be Daniel's most detailed vision of the history of Israel, and it is incredible. It will be the most exciting clear foretelling of world events ever given into the hands of a prophet, and would be accessible to the world at large. But let's look at it, and you can judge that for yourself. Uh, please go on. Of the visions given to Daniel, this next one, which we're going to call the history of Israel foretold, is simply amazing for the foreknowledge and detail it gives of future events. Ancient manuscripts of this prophecy can be dated to 300 years before Christ, but of course Bible believers know that the writings are much older. This vision dates the arrival of the Messiah and thus his true identity, which is exactly what Isaac Newton was saying. It further dates the arrival of the apostasy of authority and its subsequent restoration thousands of years later before Joseph Smith was even born. So Daniel had been pondering on the last piece of information that he had wrestled from the heavens— 
namely that it would be 2,300 years from a certain event until the fullness was restored. He had many questions and knew how to get the answers. He knew he could fast and pray, and we talked about how he did this. He's going to do it again, until the heavens opened. The angel Gabriel, who is Father Noah, returned with even more detail. Up to now, God had spoken in broad strokes to his prophet, but no longer. Starting with the fall of Babylon at the hands of Persia, he would give more amazing detail through Gabriel than he had ever given before. Let's go through this amazing prophecy verse by verse, and we may have to do it over a couple of episodes because it's a lot. I have been surprised. We never studied these in a church setting. And so I'm hoping that this will be a real feast because I have the suspicion that most of our listeners will have never studied these verses because we never talk about them. And yet they are incredible. So let's do it. And in fact, Peter, if you don't mind reading the actual Bible verses, and then I can stop you and comment on them. Oh, okay. Yes. Daniel 11.2. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. This is the bear, the chest of silver, the Medo-Persian empire. Of their kings, four were the greatest, namely Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, Smyrdas, called the impostor, Darius I, and Xerxes I. This fourth king was indeed the richest. He was called Xerxes, king of the world, and he was famous for his great wealth. He desperately wanted to conquer the Greek peoples, and so he amassed an army of 5,283,220 men, which he also maintained. Wow. It's staggering. He would fight the Battle of Thermopylae, beating the 300 Spartans. So if you saw the movie The 300, you'll know about Xerxes the Great. His power would rouse the Greeks to action and eventually be the spark that brought Alexander the Great east to seek revenge. So speaking of which, let's continue with the scriptures. Verse 3 and 4. And a mighty king shall stand up, and he shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken, and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. And not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up, even for others besides those. This was the torso of bronze, or the four-winged leopard, or kingdom of Greece. Specifically, it is the great and too quickly broken king Alexander III of Macedon, called Alexander the Great, and we've talked about him. He would be dead at 33, having conquered the known inhabitable world. Having died in the height of his prime, his kingdom was divided by his four Greek generals, basically to the four cardinal winds. They were generals Cassander, Lysimachus, Seculus, and Ptolemy. And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him, and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Of these four generals, basically the southern kingdom, or Ptolemy, who had Egypt, and the northern kingdom, Seleculus Assyria, were the ones that would take over ultimately. There were contentions between these two houses for dominance in the empire. Daniel 11.6 And in the end of years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that beget her, and he that strengthened her in these times. 
Eventually, Syria and Egypt made peace when the king of Syria agreed to marry the king of Egypt's daughter and abandon his own queen and princes. The king of Egypt sent his daughter, Berenice, to seal the pact. Angered, the Syrian queen poisoned her husband and murdered Berenice, her stepson, and all of Berenice's servants. Oh, wow. For out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army, and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail, and shall also carry captives into Egypt their gods, with their princes, and their precious vessels of silver and of gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom, and shall return into his own land. Berenice's brother Ptolemyurgenes avenged his sister's murder. He raised a great army and conquered Syria, but had to return to Egypt when he learned that his own throne was in danger. However, before he left, he sacked the north of gold and silver and returned with many treasures to Egypt. He outlived the northern king by five years. But his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble together a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. And the king of the south shall be moved with Cholur, and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north, and he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. The sons of Seleculus, the Syrian king, undertook to avenge their father's murder and their country, but only the younger son, Antiochus Magnus, would prove successful. He recovered their lost lands, he beat Nicholas, the Egyptian general, and sought to invade Egypt, but instead agreed to a truce. He might have been as great as Alexander, except that a new power was rising, and he had his own interests in the area. This new power was Rome. And when he hath taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up, and he shall cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. For the king of the north shall return, and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come after certain days with a great army and with much riches. Ptolemy Philopanter III succeeded his father as king of Egypt. He was angry at the way Antiochus III had treated his family and declared war. He beat Antiochus's army of 62,000 men, 6,000 horsemen, and 102 war elephants. Returning home to Egypt, he marched past Jerusalem, conquered it, and demanded to be allowed to worship Zeus in the Jewish temple. When the Jews refused, he returned to Egypt and slaughtered 60,000 Jews living in Alexandria. Ptolemy died from too much partying. He left his infant son as king of Egypt and asked for the rising Roman Senate to watch after him. His death excited Antiochus III, who chased the Egyptian armies out of the Holy Land with his new ally, Philip V of Macedonia. They would have attacked, but Rome stepped in and beat them back, weakening the Seleculids forever. And in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south, and also the robbers of thy people, and shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. This new infant king of the south was attacked by Antiochus with the help of Philip of Macedonia. However, he found an ally in the old robber clan of the Jews, the young but growing Rome. The Romans subverted the kingdoms of Syria and Macedonia to, quote, establish the truth of Daniel's vision, quote, if for no other reason. The Romans caused their plot to fall and later fell themselves. 
For the king of the north shall come, and cast up a mount, and take the most fenced cities, and the arms of the south shall not withstand. Neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. The Romans became the allies of Egypt and guardians of the Ptolemy line. They also made an alliance with the Jews in 161 BC, which they would later break. They slowly took over everything by alliance or by conquest. He shall also set his face to enter with strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him, thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her, but she shall not stand by his side, neither be for him. As Rome took over, the only place they had not conquered was Egypt. When Ptolemy Aulides died in 51 BC, he left his eldest daughter, Cleopatra VII, and his son, Ptolemy Twelfth in charge. He had ordered them to marry each other when they got older. He left them in the care of the Roman Senate and asked Pompey to be their guardian. Back in Rome, soon a quarrel broke out between Pompey and Julius Caesar. Caesar took over as Egypt's guardian. Young Ptolemy and Cleopatra got into a quarrel over who was really in charge, and Caesar ordered them to knock it off or he would enter Egypt with an army and spank them. Cleopatra snuck in to see Caesar and charmed him. He ordered that she be given joint rule. Ptolemy's supporters threatened to burn down Caesar's fleet of ships, so Caesar set fire to theirs instead. The drifting ships spread the fire into the city and burned down the greatest library ever assembled, the Library of Alexandria the loss of which has never been fully recovered. Alexandria kept the records of the world. Alexander had gathered them from all over the world. What's so interesting is that these books that were lost actually made the Bible more prominent because it contained ancient history, and so much of the ancient history burned within the library of Alexandria. Cleopatra paid Caesar back with her body and gave birth to his son, whom she named Caesarion. Later, Cleopatra would cite against the house of Caesar for Mark Anthony. After this shall he turn his face unto the isles, and shall take many. But a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach he shall cause it to turn upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Julius Caesar came on the scene from the rising Rome. He conquered the isles and Egypt's queen and returned to his own fort, Rome, where he was declared dictator for life. He actually was trying to emulate the Egyptian system. He had learned about the power of the pharaohs from Egypt, and he wanted the line of Caesars to be the pharaohs of Rome. That's what's actually going on there. One of the princes of Rome, Brutus, murdered him and ended his reign. And we actually have his death mask, which you can see the pain on his face from being stabbed repeatedly. Let's post that on the website, Peter, so that people can see it. It's kind of interesting. We actually know exactly what Julius Caesar looked like, at least in his death. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. Thank you so much, Reed. Uh, we have run out of time, unfortunately, for this episode, but we, we knew that this important vision was probably going to take a few episodes to get through. And so let's just pause here. We hope everybody will join us for part two. And uh, until next time, may the Lord Jesus Christ continue to be with all of you. Thank you.